Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners, Jonathan here. Today's episode is the first of a three-part series on the arc of therapy, the beginning, middle, and end. And I'd like to thank Theranest for sponsoring these three episodes. Theranest is simple and affordable practice management software that makes it easier for a solo practitioner or an entire agency to get through the administrative part of being a therapist that, quite honestly, no one likes. Theranest has geeky background stuff like HIPAA compliance and encrypted data transfer. And cool front-end stuff like a clean professional interface, intake assessments, progress notes, and top-rated customer support. Now, I thought Theranest was the perfect sponsor for these episodes because only in fantasy land, or graduate school, can you talk about therapy without talking about paperwork. Now, while I'm giving shout-outs, I want to thank a special group of people who have generously donated their time to provide transcripts of podcast episodes. One of the most frequently requested resources on the podcast is transcripts. And since this is a one-man show, it takes a village. And so I'd like to give a big, big old thank you to the following rock stars in the Social Work Podcast Village for generously donating these transcripts. Meredith Amshoff, a recent MSW graduate of Boston College who's currently working with Catholic Relief Services in Kampala, Uganda. Amy Smith, an early childhood special education pair of professional. Rashida M. Edwards, LMSW. She's a couples therapist at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy in New York City. Tierra Montgomery, who's a math student, and Kelsey Macklin, who's just straight up from California. If you're interested in donating a transcript, please send me an email at jonathan.b.singer at gmail.com. Now, before we begin the beginning of therapy, I want to make it very clear that I'm not talking about therapy as a place. Sometimes we think about therapy and we imagine a sweet old private practice office with that chair that clients can curl up in and the artwork that might be a projective test or just something that the therapist could afford in the early days before they had a waiting list. What I'm talking about over the next three episodes certainly fits that place, but I'm talking about therapy as a lens or an approach to working with people that can happen anywhere. Some of the most profound therapy sessions I've had with my clients took place in a McDonald's on a hot summer day in Texas while eating cold ice cream or in a waiting room of a dentist's office with a client who'd been suffering with rotten teeth for far too long. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about some conceptual issues like What do people want when they come to treatment, and how should you be with clients? I'm also going to review some concrete aspects of the beginning of treatment, like the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment and DSM assessment. I'm going to talk a little bit about confidentiality and billing. And I'm I'm mixing up these ideas because I want this episode to be as interesting to the first-year social work student as it is to the 35-year veteran of the field. And now, without further ado, on to the part of therapy that some people love and some people hate. Beginnings. So how does it all begin? 
Well, it's helpful to remember that the person or couple or family that's coming to see you would rather be doing almost anything else. They might be polite to you or even excited to talk, but for most people, talking to a therapist is anxiety-provoking. It's frustrating, and some even see it as a form of combat. In the beginning, it's helpful to be curious and remember that this client has no reason to trust you. Now, in episode 80, when I talked with Nancy Smith about trauma-informed care, she reminded us that lots of people who come to therapy have had some sort of experience or experiences that give them reason to distrust adults or mental health professionals. Communities of color have a long history of abuse and mistreatment by mental health professionals, so much so that we need to assume a level of cultural mistrust, particularly between white providers and clients of color. So, Given all this, before someone walks into your office or you walk into their home, you have to assume that there was some sort of breaking point. One or more people either suggested or required, like a judge or a spouse or a parent, that this person come get help. Sociologist Bernice Pesco-Solito, I love saying that name, Pesco-Solito, she came up with a theory of help-seeking called the Network Episode Model. Her research on adults and mental health treatment found that it takes an entire community to push adults into treatment. And so if we think about that, we can imagine that the person coming in for you might have had their appointment made by somebody else. And since that appointment was made, there might have been some time that has passed. There might have been a screening or an intake. Um, There might have been several days or several weeks from when you first heard about this person to the time that they're actually sitting in your office where you're sitting in their home. Now, postmodern therapies like solution-focused and narrative have helped us to see that constant change is the only constant. We have to assume that some things changed between when the client made the appointment and when they showed up in your office. The change might have been something directly related to the presenting problem or the reason for referral, or maybe not. But just like the relationship between the butterfly that flaps its wings and the tsunami that wreaks havoc on a shoreline halfway around the world, we should never discount the importance of the small stuff, especially if that small stuff is actually big stuff like people not trusting us or not wanting to be in therapy in the first place. So how do we actually get clients? Well, if you're working in an agency, the likelihood is that the client's already in the system, right? Somebody's um, already done an intake. Somebody's already working with them as a therapist. They're getting referred to you. And since the client's in-house, you'll likely have access to their medical records. You might even eat lunch with their current therapist, and you've probably been to a staffing where they've talked about the client. The challenge in this situation is to see the client with fresh eyes, even though there's all this information available. Now, if you're in private practice, you might get a client from another therapist or primary care provider or mandated by a court order. So it's really important to get release of information forms signed with all the right people in all the right places. And if you're referring a client to another therapist, you can't follow up and say, hey, did Domingo make an appointment with you? Because of confidentiality. 
the therapist can't say, oh yeah, Domingo called me up, everything's great, unless you've had all the right forms signed by all the right people. Now, if you're getting clients from somebody else, whether that's in an agency, sort of in-house, or it's from somebody outside of your practice, at the very least, you want to know the following information. You want to know the referral source. You want to know what the presenting problem is, the prior treatment history, and the current goals. Basically, you want to know, why is this person coming to me now? What are they wanting? Which is a really good question. So what do people want when they come to therapy? This is such a basic question, but it's not always easy to answer. You know, if you think about your own life for a moment, if you were to call up a therapist and make an appointment, what would you want to get out of treatment? Or maybe based on what I've said, it's likely that you don't think you need to get therapy. And so more realistically, why would someone else want you to get therapy? If you did come for therapy, what would you like to change? What thoughts, feelings, or behaviors are getting in the way of you getting what you want in life? Now, the question of what people want out of therapy is really interesting. My dissertation research was on mothers who took their children for mental health services. And what I found was that kids were brought into mental health services by their moms because the moms wanted one of two things. They wanted to know what the problem was or they knew what the problem was and they wanted to know how to solve it. So the first group of moms was looking for answers. They couldn't figure out what the problem was. They knew something was wrong with their kid. Their teachers and their friends and their pastors and even their employers had said, hey, something's wrong. But they didn't know what. And no one around them knew what the problem was. They just knew that something wasn't right. So they're bringing their kids to the professionals, that's you, to find out what's going on. Now, it's important to emphasize that these moms had already done an exhaustive investigation into the problem before they got to therapy services. And I'm highlighting this because therapists often think that they're the first stop in the help-seeking process. And the truth is that they're usually only the most recent, and they're not going to be the last. So this group of moms wanted a thorough assessment and diagnosis. Now, I'm not using the term diagnosis to exclusively mean DSM diagnosis. I mean that they wanted the professional to let them know that the, the things that they were seeing in the kid, A, B, and C, that these were related together and that they were probably associated with something else, let's say D, and that all of that means this other thing. E. I know this is kind of like therapy algebra. <laughs> um, let me give you an example. Um, so, for example, they wanted the therapist to say, um, hey, mom, so the fidgeting outbursts and social ostracism you've seen at home in school are related to your kid's difficulty paying attention and hyperactivity. And we think that there are probably biological and environmental reasons why this is happening. Okay, so that... That is taking this cluster of symptoms and helping the mom to understand what the problem is. So 
that's the thorough assessment. Now, if you've been in the field for a while, you might hear this as kind of a generic description of ADHD and are probably anticipating the next part of the conversation, the one where the psychiatrist recommends a psychostimulant and the therapist works with a kid on social skills training and time management and works with the parents and teachers on being on the same page with structure, consequences, and rewards. But that second part of the conversation about treatment jumps ahead too soon. Remember, we're talking about moms who don't know what's wrong and they want to find out what the problem is. It doesn't mean that they're looking for the therapist to fix the problem. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, why would people come in for therapy if they didn't want me to fix the problem? Well, so interesting. These moms saw the job of fixing their kid as their jobs as moms, right? This is what they as moms were supposed to do. They were supposed to fix the problem. Yes, they needed the professional to say what was wrong, but once they got that, then they saw it as their responsibility to move on to the next stage. And so for these moms, a 15-minute intake assessment and three sessions of like play therapy or let's get to know each other was terrible services, right? They would have been really disappointed with that. What they wanted was 15 minutes of let's get to know each other and three sessions of assessment. Now, most people work in agencies where they don't do a three-session assessment. So this is the kind of thing that's really important to know and to ask the parents, especially parents of kids, but you can do this with adults too who are coming in for their own treatment, is it that you know what the problem is, but you don't know how to solve it, or are you looking to understand what the problem is in the first place? And that'll give you some insight into where to go. So let's take this other group of moms. So they came to services because they knew what the problem was, but they didn't know how to fix it. Or they had tried to fix it, but couldn't fix it on their own. So they might know that ADHD was the likely diagnosis for their kid who was fidgeting, having outbursts, and experiencing social ostracism because maybe they were the same way as a kid or because one of the kid's siblings already has the diagnosis. But they don't know how to fix the problem for this particular kid, so they're coming to the professionals to do it. For these moms, 15 minutes of let's get to know each other and then a three-session assessment would be terrible. And what they want is the 15-minute intake right, which is basically someone to honor and respect their expertise as the mom and then take them seriously when they say, here's the problem. I know the problem. I just need to know what you can do to fix it. Again, the moms had two different reasons for coming in. One was to find out what the problem was and the other was to fix a known problem. And if you can get a handle on which one of these is the main focus for seeking treatment, then you're a lot further along than most folks. All right, so quick summary. Where are we so far? Most clients don't want to come to therapy, and when they do, you should know if they're looking to discover what the problem is or to work on fixing it. So, they're coming in. Then what do you do? Well, you have to figure out, do you need to do an intake? Like I said, if you work at an agency and there's already been an intake and you've got the medical records, then you don't have to do a thorough intake. 
But what you should do is you should check in with the client, and that could be an individual couple or family client, to see if what is written in the chart is still accurate, right? Because change is constant. You should find out if there are any things that seem to be discrepant in the chart with the reason for referral or from anything that the client has told you prior to coming in. So if there is the need for an assessment, maybe you're in private practice, maybe this is the first time you've seen the client, maybe you're at an agency and part of your job is to do an assessment when you get a new client. So you should do a biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. Now, I talk about the basic biopsychosocial spiritual assessment in episode two. And for our purposes, just remember that the BPSS, that's the biopsychosocial spiritual, it provides a context for why someone is seeking services. Um, you want to find out biologically what's going on with a person's neurobiological functioning. How's their physical health? What's their family medical history or other family treatment, including medications? For the psychological part, you want to understand things like their personality style or attachment style, their interpersonal relationships, and any existing diagnoses. The sociocultural assessment looks at issues like cultural beliefs, cultural norms, understanding of the problem, and um, stressors and problems that are caused by more the, the, the socio-political context in which they live. And then this, the final section is the spiritual assessment. Um, the spiritual assessment is not a new part anymore. At one point it was. We traditionally only did the biopsychosocial. But um, recently, David Hodge, who is one of the field's leading experts on spirituality and social work, he came up with um, an acronym that synthesizes several existing religious and spiritual assessment models. And he calls it I caring. When you do a, a spiritual assessment, you want to find out I, important. How important is spirituality or religion? The C stands for community. Is there participation in a religious or spiritual community? A, assets and R, resources. Are there spiritual beliefs and practices that serve as assets and resources? The I, or the second I, stands for influence. What's the influence of spirituality and religion on the current situation? N stands for needs. Are there spiritual needs that should be addressed? And G stands for goals. Is incorporating spirituality into treatment one of the client's goals? And if so, how? So again, if you're interested in learning more about the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment, check out episode two. Now, in contrast to the BPSS, which provides the context for the presenting problem, a diagnostic formulation places the problem in a category. Now, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is the most widely used system for categorizing mental health problems, but it's not the only one. If you want a, a really fun history of the first DSM up through DSM-4, you can check out my very first episode of the Social Work Podcast. And for a scathing critique of DSM-5, you can check out my interview with Jeff LaCase, which was 100 episodes later. That's episode 101. Now, if you're doing a DSM diagnostic interview, a great resource is the cultural formulation interview available for free on the DSM-5.org website. 
anyone doing a DSM diagnosis should use a cultural formulation. We are, after all, cultural beings, and diagnosis is culturally informed. As part of the diagnostic interview, clinicians are expected to gather and summarize information in four areas. The first area is the cultural identity of the individual, and this includes ways in which the person's cultural, racial, and ethnic identity may influence his or her relationship with others, access to resources, and developmental and current challenges. The second area is cultural conceptualization of distress, and this includes concepts like cultural syndromes. And, and cultural syndromes are when you have a cluster of symptoms that all coalesce together, but aren't necessarily a disease or a disorder. Um, it also includes idioms of distress. I love this concept of idioms of distress. Idioms are words or phrases um, that reflect distress. When I was growing up, my grandparents' generation, they would talk about people having nervous breakdowns. Well, I had no idea what a nervous breakdown was. I imagine somebody being like, oh, I'm so nervous, and then like falling down, right? Because that was my little kid's brain. It wasn't until I was older and a mental health professional, and I was talking with them about what did these nervous breakdowns look like, that I realized that what they called a nervous breakdown is what we call a depressive episode. Now, nervous breakdown and depression are both idioms of distress, right? Depression is not a diagnosis. Major depressive disorder is a diagnosis, but depression is just something that we say culturally that, that I can say, and you understand because we're part of the same cultural group. So, um, idioms of distress are words or phrases that are specific to a cultural group. The third thing is explanations and perceived causes. And this is so important because if you're part of a cultural group that understands the cause of a problem as being, for example, um, because the devil is inside you or because um, uh, you did something bad and this is karma coming back at you, right? That this is, these are cultural explanations that are important to know about Otherwise, you will be speaking a different language from your client about why there's a problem and what can be done about it. Now, for the cultural formulation, the third area is understanding psychosocial stressors and cultural features of vulnerability and resilience. This is the part of the cultural formulation that covers um, Axis 4 from the DSM-4, which was psychosocial stressors. If you're new to the field, you probably weren't trained in DSM-4, but the DSM-4's Axis 4 was often called the social work axis because it addressed the psychosocial problems that are really in the wheelhouse of social work. And the fourth area is cultural features of the relationship between the individual and the clinician. This asks the clinician to consider issues like language barriers, cultural mistrust of professional services or providers, and how those cultural features may affect the therapeutic alliance. Now, if you're listening to me talk about the BPSS and the diagnostic interview and you're starting to panic like, oh my God, this is so much information, take a deep breath. Your agency or your practice probably has a standard intake form that covers all of this information. And if they don't, 
practice management systems like Theranest have intake assessment and diagnosis forms built into the software. With Theranest, you can modify these forms or create your own. For example, there is no cultural formulation interview in Theranest, but you could certainly input it. And when you're done, you can electronically sign and print to PDF or hard copy your assessments or progress notes. Theranest also makes it really easy to find diagnostic codes and names with the click of a button. So even if you have all of these forms already in your practice management software, if you're new, it's going to take you time. New forms, new information. And the time that it takes is because you're having to think about what information is important and what information is not. You're thinking through all the options, and this makes your thinking slow. So how do you speed up your thinking? Well, this issue of fast and slow thinking is such a big deal that the guy who figured it out got a Nobel Prize. Daniel Kahneman, uh, the psychologist who won the Nobel Prize with his work with uh, Amos Tversky, talks about the experience of thinking fast and slow. Fast thinking, originally called System 1, is what experienced clinicians do all the time. After five minutes on the phone with a teacher three minutes of being in a room with a kid, and two minutes of talking with the parents, the experienced clinician has a pretty good idea that the kid meets criteria for ADHD. Now, did they perform a thorough assessment in 10 minutes? No, but they have enough expertise to recognize a pattern based on minimal information. And they go through a complex set of mental events and everything coalesces around this diagnosis of ADHD. Fast thinking is great, unless you can't articulate why you came to the conclusion. And the conclusion is essential for documentation and conveying to lawyers and judges exactly why you did what you did. Lawyers love cross-examining so-called expert witnesses who are unable to explain how they came to their conclusion, right? They get caught in the trap of fast thinking. And if you're supervising an intern, this fast thinking can be confusing or frustrating. Fast thinking can also be fascinating, and it's what makes experienced therapists seem a little bit like magicians. The flip side of fast thinking is what Kahneman calls slow or system two thinking. Beginner thinking is slow. Now, Kahneman doesn't use this as a pejorative, although supervisors and interns often think of it that way. Slow thinking means deliberate thinking. If you don't know what the information means, you take time to sort it all out. Some of the tools used in slow thinking are algorithms, flowcharts, logic models, and case formulations. Slow thinking often avoids the biases and errors of fast thinking. Fast thinking, on the other hand, forces a decision and moves things along when slow thinking might have us gathering information and spending an inordinate amount of time figuring out what to do. So in an ideal world, fast and slow thinking work together for optimal decision-making. And I'd argue that if the supervisor's a fast thinker and the intern's a slow thinker, they can be a better team by talking through those differences. Now, if you're interested in learning more about thinking fast and slow, I highly recommend Kahneman's 2011 book of the same name. And if you want some more podcast episodes about Kahneman's work, just check out the Freakonomics podcast. It seems like about half of their episodes reference Kahneman and Tversky's work. 
So in the beginning, your client has no reason to trust you. You have to earn that trust. But also, you have no way to gauge whether or not what your client is telling you is actually accurate. So one of the first things that you have to do for a therapy session is establish rapport. In the beginning, rapport is one of the most important things that you can do. And rapport isn't something you establish once. Rapport ebbs and flows in therapy as it does in relationships outside of therapy. And the fancy phrase that we use in therapy is therapeutic alliance. How strong the alliance is between the therapist and client turns out to be very important in terms of how well the client does in treatment. It doesn't matter how good you are at identifying automatic thoughts, rooting out core beliefs, and dismantling the cognitive triad. If your client doesn't like you, if they don't feel like they have a strong alliance, you're not going to make progress. The therapeutic alliance is one of the common factors in psychotherapy. Common factors are things that are present in all therapeutic relationships, regardless of the specific treatment approach. For example, a good CBT therapist and a good psychodynamic therapist will conceptualize client problems and approach treatment very differently, but both will have strong alliances with their clients. Some of the other common factors are agreeing on goals, collaboration, genuineness, positive regard, and expectations of treatment. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hmm... Those sound an awful lot like the three conditions that Carl Rogers said were necessary and sufficient to meet the needs of clients, specifically empathy, genuineness, and unconditional positive regard. Well, you're right. Carl Rogers said that those three components were necessary and sufficient. But as I talked about in episode eight, these three conditions are necessary, but in many cases, not sufficient for people to get better. Here's an example. Several years ago, I worked with a woman in her mid-50s. She was recently unemployed. She was single. She had no children. And she was struggling with financial stressors and debilitating depressive symptoms, including the thoughts of suicide. Now, there's no doubt that I had to be empathic, genuine, and have unconditional positive regard for this woman. She said that her peers looked upon her with pity. They were married. She was not. If her peers were divorced, then they looked at her with pity because at least they had children or grandchildren. And if they were divorced and no children, at least they had their careers. She had no grandkids, no children, no career, no partner. Now, I can argue the politics of this gender role for women in their 50s, but in this moment, it was more important for me to validate that she was valuable and that she was worthy of being cared for. These were some of the things that fed into her depression, and by validating her experience and by letting her know that I had unconditional positive regard for her, that these things in and of themselves were therapeutic. It was necessary for treatment to work, but it wasn't sufficient to fully address her symptoms. Part of it was that she had to find a job. 
right? She had some really basic economic needs that were fueling some anxiety and some of the depressive symptoms. And so me being empathetic and, and caring about her, that wasn't sufficient. One of the things that I did was that I helped her think of her current situation as temporary. We framed it as role transition, meaning that she was depressed in part because she was grieving the loss of her previous role of partner and wife and, and all the accompanying status and financial security that came along with that. And I later found out that role transition is one of the big four issues that interpersonal psychotherapy, which I talk about in episode 10, focuses on for treating women with depression. At the time we worked together, I wasn't aware of interpersonal psychotherapy, so it's just happenstance that we managed to do that. You might be listening and saying to yourself, wait a minute, Jonathan, you were just talking about the common factors in therapy, and then you gave an example of how an empirically supported treatment was the thing that made the difference for your client? Okay, nice catch. So here's the deal. Here's the relationship between common factors and empirically supported treatment. Um, the research by Lambert and colleagues on what makes psychotherapy work has found that when you compare treatments that are already shown to work, right, and that includes these empirically supported treatments, the things that are most helpful are the common factors not the specific ingredients. The research doesn't say that any treatment works. It says that between treatments that already work, the most important things are the common factors. So it's important that you're doing something that's working, and it's important that you focus on these common factor variables. Okay, where was I? Oh, right, I was talking about rapport, which is amazing that I went from rapport to like psychotherapy research. Um, but that's, that's just a whole different thing. So one of the best ways to establish rapport is to find out what your client likes, what they're good at, things that make them feel good about themselves, and they give you a chance to be impressed by them. We like it when others are genuinely interested and impressed by us. And this effect is magnified when you're sitting in the therapy room talking with somebody who already knows some pretty embarrassing or shameful things about you or is about to know those things about you. So small talk, right? So you're doing small talk, but not just for the sake of small talk. You're doing small talk for the sake of starting to build a therapeutic alliance. And how do you know when you've established enough rapport to move out of small talk and into the next phase of treatment? Well, when I interviewed Guy Diamond and Suzanne Levy, the co-developers of attachment-based family therapy, they talked about knowing that you've spent enough time on small talk when your client doesn't have their guard up, right? When they start to answer questions unselfconsciously, freely and spontaneously, and once this happens, then you can feel more confident that they're going to be honest and genuine with you. And as I talked about in my digression, um, honesty and genuineness are necessary components to effective treatment. Now, once you have started some small talk and they, there's this sense that they're willing to share with you, before things go on too far, you really want to make sure that you review confidentiality. Right, You want to talk about what you're going to do if they disclose that they're thinking about harming themselves, that they are either the victims of abuse, or that they are 
abusing others, particularly minors or older adults or people with disabilities. Um, or if there's a threat to harm somebody. And in certain states, um, particularly those covered by the Tarasoff ruling in California, um, having a, a duty to warn is one of the things that therapists um, have to consider. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the, the duty to warn and the Tarasoff because that's really a state-by-state -state thing. But if you don't know what your state's duty to warn regulations are, you should look into that. Um, in addition to reviewing confidentiality, and this is related to uh, thoughts of harm to self, you want to make sure that you're screening for substance use, suicide risk, and for interpersonal violence. And there are lots of screens that are available. You can plug those into Theranest, you can download them offline, or you can make sure that your intake assessment asks some key questions, such as, in the past couple of weeks, have you had any thoughts of seriously ending your life? Right, that might be a suicide screen. Um, there are other screens for substance use and for interpersonal violence. But this is a key part of the beginning stages of therapy. Now, can you just jump in there and just start asking these questions to a total stranger? No. I mean, you could. But, but the responses that you get wouldn't be very valid or reliable. So these are questions that have to come up a little bit after you've started to break the ice with them. Okay, so quick review. You want to assume people don't want to come to therapy, but they're here anyway. You need to build rapport, develop trust, figure out why they are in therapy. Is it to figure out what the problem is? In which case, a thorough biopsychosocial assessment and diagnosis is great. And all these should be done through cultural lenses. And it, if it's because they know what the problem is, but they don't know how to solve it, then the focus should be on solutions. Which gets us to the next part of the beginning of therapy, which is that in this beginning phase, you should be starting to conceptualize what's going on. Now, again, if you're working with a mom and she says, look, I know my kid. I know what's going on with my kid. I'm going to provide you the case conceptualization. Beautiful. Then she's giving you that. And what you need to do then is to talk with her about shoring up the resources and making sure that what's available in-house as well as outside of therapy is going to address the problems that the mom came with. For the rest of your clients, you got to figure out what is going on, right? And a term that people use to describe this is case conceptualization. And your conceptualization could be from a specific theoretical perspective, such as CBT or psychodynamic approaches. Um, in, in episode 52... I spoke with Joe Walsh, the professor, not the rock legend, uh, about theories for clinical social work practice. And he suggested that, that people have one or two dominant theoretical perspectives. But just as an example, James Morrison, the author of the very popular Guilford Press books, DSM Made Easy and The First Interview, has a great example of how a single presenting problem can be understood from really very different perspectives. He, he has the, the brief example of a married woman who drinks too much alcohol. From a psychodynamic perspective, you could conceptualize the drinking as um, 
as having something to do with uh, uh, her recognition that her overbearing husband resembles her father, who was also a drinker. Or from a behavioral perspective, which is that she has an actual association with uh, drinking that provides relief from tensions induced by relationships. You could take a social conceptualization, which is that a bunch of her friends drink, drinking is accepted, and even encouraged in her social milieu. There could be the, be the biological conceptualization, which is that there is a genetic contribution toward alcohol misuse from her father's side. Now, Morrison doesn't include spiritual, but because of the biopsychosocial spiritual, we know that understanding things and being able to conceptualize them from a spiritual perspective is also important. So Lori Holleran, whom I interviewed in episode 105, talking about recovery high schools, she would say that understanding the spiritual aspect of a problem um, related to drinking is really key to uh, resolving that problem. And a spiritual perspective might be that the drinking has something to do with this woman's struggles to really figure out who she is in the world. Now, Morrison correctly points out that we should uh, be able to see issues from all of these perspectives simultaneously. So having case conceptualization doesn't mean that you have to go one direction and only that direction but it is going to inform what happens in the middle and the end of therapy. And speaking of the end of therapy and the end of this episode, and you've done a great job of hanging out and listening to this, the last thing I'm going to talk about is ending the first session. Endings are all about setting things up for what comes next. But we have to be prepared for the possibility that our first session might be our last Research by Gibbons and colleagues looked at services used in community mental health clinics in 1993 and again in 2003. And what they found was that the modal number of sessions that people attended was one. Now, the average number of sessions was higher because some people attended more than one session. But most people only attended one session. So what do you do with that? Well... You can always think about, this might be my only session, and if it is, what do we need to accomplish? Now, brief therapy approaches address this issue. And one of the most valuable insights to come out of brief therapy is the idea that we can use time as a motivator. If you know that you only have one session, and you think of your session as the beginning, middle, and end, then you can use time to move people from what do you want, what can we do about it, and now that we're ending, where are you going to go next? We'll talk more in depth about the middle and the end in the next two episodes, but suffice it to say that you should always think about the end of therapy in the beginning. What will let you and your client know that they no longer need or want services? How will you measure change? What information will help you get to where you need to go, and what information will slow you down? What's your exit plan? That is, what sorts of issues are present that can't be addressed in your work, but that should be addressed by someone else? So let's imagine that you've had an amazing first session with your client. They were anxious, 
but your gentle and curious questions helped them to relax. You uncovered some important information about how they got here and what they were looking to get out of therapy. They curled up in that big chair of yours or they really enjoyed their ice cream cone. And the session ended with a commitment to come back for more sessions. Now it's time to document. (laughs) If you're doing an intake, it should be thorough, but remember that it won't be complete. You'll learn things as you run through the course of therapy. Assessment is ongoing, and when you learn new information or need to revise old information, you use your progress notes to document what you've learned and to create addendums for your assessment. Now, as I mentioned before, if you're using a program like Theranest, documentation might not be fun, but it's easier. Theranest has intake forms, progress notes, and you can create your own customized forms, like I suggested creating a cultural um, formulation interview in Theranest. You can submit electronic insurance claims, accept credit cards, create invoices, and super bills all through Theranest. And for an extra fee, you can create a client portal to allow your clients to submit intake forms and even schedule appointments online. You can try Theranest for free for 21 days and then receive 20% off your first three months after that when you sign up at theranest.com slash socialworkpodcast. Now, the second and third episodes in this series will cover the middle of therapy and the end of therapy. And if you want more information about the episodes and research I've mentioned in this episode, you can find links on the website at socialworkpodcast.com. If you want to join the enormous community of podcast listeners, please go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash swpodcast or follow the Twitter account at S-O-C-W-O-R-K podcast. And if you want to donate your time and energy to transcribe an episode, please email me at jonathan.b.singer at gmail.com. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.